Welcome to Telegeography Explains the Internet, the show that explores the business behind all of the ways humans stay connected around the world. I'm your host, Greg Bryan, and my guest today is Dennis Thankachan. He's the co-founder and CEO at Lightyear. As you will hear, Lightyear is a startup focused on lowering friction and transaction costs in the B2B telecom market. And of course, this topic is pretty near and dear to my heart, being a big part of what I do in my day-to-day at Telegeography. So we first get into a general intro of Lightyear and uh, how Dennis started the company and how they move beyond just sourcing to managing the whole life cycle of telecom products with their software. So we talked about the general move in the B2B world uh, toward everything digital and as a service, and how that is now reaching the network and ultimately increases the efficiency leading to more price deflation. So from his position of being able to see how enterprises are sourcing network, Dennis and I end up talking about some of the key WAN trends that he has seen recently, such as the shift to off-premises data centers, hybrid and remote work, and the drive to cut network costs through changing technologies, right-sizing networks, etc. We also get into some of his skepticism about some of the often talked about WAN trends and technologies out there in the market and, uh, and the take on where this is all going in the future, which trends will bear out and, and which might be just hype. So it was a really fun deep dive into how the WAN is and should be changing with the market and technology and how best to take advantage of those changes. So I think you'll enjoy. Okay, welcome to the show, Dennis. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so, you know, like I always do, I thought it would be useful if um, first you could give us a, a brief background on yourself and kind of how you came to be the founder of Lightyear AI. Sure. It's a pretty random story, mm-hmm. but I feel like those are the most is... fun, right? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I also feel like no- nobody is born passionate about uh, B2B telecommunications in particular. Um, That's awesome. I studied computer science and finance in undergrad and was pretty passionate about starting a software company, Mm -hmm. but I had immigrant parents who would have been quite unhappy if I told them that I was going to start a company after school. Mm -hmm. So I had to do a day or two to satisfy them and also ideally make some money. So I worked at Goldman Sachs doing investment banking, Mm -hmm. basically advising large companies on mergers and acquisitions and things of that sort. Now, was it in the TMT sector at all or or just kind of broad? um, I did both TMT as well as industrials coverage Mm -hmm. and worked on a bunch of different things. I actually didn't touch telecom at all, Mm -hmm. oddly enough. Um, And the the way that I fell into telecom in particular is after this, I worked at a large hedge fund called Point State Capital. It was like a $10 billion-ish fund at the time. And over there, I did investing in internet companies, mm-hmm. in software, and in telecommunications. That's that's the perfect and, uh, little mixture there, right? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That sort of is like the combination of what Red Lightyear, and in particular, I ended up sort of leading our telecom coverage, where we ended up putting a lot of capital to work and making a lot of money. I built 
um, some really strong management relationships in the space, mm -hmm. and I became a gargantuan nerd on <laughs> telecom technology. You're in the right and... place, so you can feel at home. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Over, over over there, when I was working there, people are like, "This stuff seems pretty boring. I can't tell why you're interested." Yeah. But um, I I was very interested in telecom tech, all the trends, etc. And I was hell bent on starting a company like that. The hedge fund space is a great arena to make a lot of money mm -hmm. but it was quite unfulfilling and i felt a little bit like a cog in a wheel just sort of yeah. moving money around so i quit my job with nothing lined up mm -hmm. um actually coming off of like a promotion and you know some really strong couple years of performance and so was that a hard I, call I, to the parents then? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were not. They yeah. were not happy at all. They, they, they were. They were not happy at all. They, they also, you know, they, they don't. They didn't quite understand all of the career decisioning there. Yeah. But, um, I, I quit with nothing lined up with the intention of investigating a few different ideas and theses I had in the telecommunications space in particular, mm -hmm. none of which ended up becoming light year, most of which were bad ideas. Sure. But, um, That's the way it works, sort of, right? Sort of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I digress. But um, in, in the context of how, how that turned into light year is um, I was actually initially going to build an internet service provider with sort of a novel approach in a few mm. different ways. Mm -hmm. um, but in the context of building that, we started investigating me and my co-founder started investigating how businesses buy their telecom services what services they buy and just the overall business telecom market and the couple of things that i discovered that were quite interesting were for one um, b2b telecom was a much larger market than i appreciated everyone is familiar with you know sort of buying your internet connection or your cell phone service right. and obviously that's gargantuan but i didn't realize how much businesses spent on telecommunications that, that's why you're really among friends i literally built a model on the the size of the enterprise uh, wan market so yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. And, and that's sort of right up your alley yeah. yeah you guys are the, the ones in the know but it is sort of an earned secret because i think a lot of people are very unaware oh, of how no doubt. large yeah. the market is and the combination of that and then i i didn't quite appreciate how arcane the practices were for businesses to actually go about buying these services. You fax in my purchase order to get spun up in three months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and it's, uh, you know, phone calls, emails, dealing with brokers, mm -hmm. shady third parties, nothing is digitized. There's no digital means by which to determine what vendors are on net mm -hmm. or near net. There's just massive information asymmetry. And given just the size of the market and the fact that you have such a theoretically efficient buyer base of enterprises that want to get the best service, the best deal. They care about resiliency. They care about price. They care about service. Um, it just didn't make any sense that there was no digital means to do anything. So we actually completely dropped everything with regard to the initial idea that we were going yeah. after and started building a digital means for businesses to buy and manage their telecommunications. And that's what became light year, which yeah. I'd be happy to go into further. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I, I would say it's probably not the worst idea when you're doing a startup like this to uh, have come from the finance world and know people who have money. Right? So, yeah. it, it helped quite a bit, yeah. I will say. And also the other thing is, I think I underappreciate in retrospect how much having some personal money mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, made a difference in the 
in the sort of circumstances with regard to like my own appetite for risk and being willing to start a business. Yeah, yeah, of course, that's the big factor, right? So um, uh, when you're laden with mortgages and kids, ideas are a dime a dozen. It's uh, uh, money and execution. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, that's really cool. So uh, I think um, obviously as a startup, you're probably very used to doing this, but um, but most folks listening to the show probably aren't familiar with Lightyear. Maybe some are certainly, um, especially uh, among the the end user crowd that that listens to the podcast. But just give us a rundown of um, you know you've set it up well, so I think people probably have a good idea already. But what what exactly do you do, and how does it work? Absolutely. So Lightyear is what we term, at least on our website, the telecom operating system. Mm-hmm. And what that means is for a business, this is the product that can manage the entire life cycle for your telecommunication services from beginning to end, mm-hmm. um, effectively allowing you to buy and manage the full suite of telecom services um, with software in a way that's vendor neutral. So to put a pin in that, so, it's, it's maybe more than just a sourcing tool. It's it's the whole lifecycle management orchestration kind of thing. Exactly. So sourcing is obviously an extremely core component mm-hmm. of the lifecycle. Don't get me wrong. And perhaps the, the component of the lifecycle where you're most active with a specific service. Um, and we, we started off as a tool primarily focused around sourcing and we've sort of added mm-hmm. the full lifecycle mm-hmm. over time. So um, just at the starting point, when you're running an RFP for services, like whether you're buying a single dedicated internet circuit or a point-to-point circuit, or maybe you're in the market for 500 mm-hmm. DIAs or you know 50 point-to-points right. and an SUN or, or, or something or other, um, typically the enterprise workflow will be phone calls and emails mm-hmm. to either a group of vendors where they have no idea who can service where, what something should cost, or a third party that may have ulterior motives, like a broker or something or other that may be trying to bolster their own pockets mm-hmm. with a high commission. Our software product will allow you to digitally sort of create an RFP and it will be run utilizing data. We have a bunch of location data on what vendors can service various locations where with a high degree of confidence we can tell how to run a basically like an efficient process, including on net carriers, near net carriers, the LEC, the cable co at a specific location. We can make sure that all the right carriers bid and submit bids. We can run those bids for a specific RFP, whether it be one site or hundred sites against the data set of live market data spanning hundreds of thousands of price quotes mm-hmm. to ensure that you're getting the best possible price and also gather information, for example, on like the network AS number, um, any infrastructure that may be sort of resold by a carrier, whether you know whether or not you're buying type two service as an example, and all of these other facets that would go into a purchase and make sure that you're making an efficient purchase decision. But basically we run the whole process with data in our backend and you're basically faced with a, an e-commerce style experience right. as you buy services in the platform, um, post quote selection, you can sign contracts in platform. We'll actually project manage your implementation of service via software mm-hmm. to make sure that you actually have an efficient implementation and that any delays are escalated. We also have post install for your services and network inventory manager um, that tracks over 30 unique data points on each service that is in your footprint or that you purchase. 
and that network inventory manager will effectively be your system of record for your network that is what you'll go to if you have an outage, a service issue, you mm -hmm. can place tickets on your services, will automatically handle renewals on your behalf. And we can even give you one consolidated bill for all of your yeah, services. Yeah, I mean, that's huge. I, I'll tell you in, in my dealings with enterprises, um, even to get to the point of sort of like a question along the lines of like, you know, what should the future of my network look like? Or, or more simply, how much should I be paying for my network? what is my current network is a hard question for many to answer, right? So, yeah, yeah that, that, that would be huge to have it consolidated into one interface. I think often it's it's a, a series of 15 different Excel sheets managed by different groups and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah, if you even have right, that, right. which can be a particular thing. Like when we onboard customers network inventory, mm -hmm. every single time we discover, oh, you know, 20 circuits that they don't even know when they were purchased right. or how they were purchased. That, that may have been purchased 15 to 20 years ago. Yeah, or have long since been, been decommissioned by the carrier anyway. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it tends to be in the carrier's best interest mm -hmm. to make sure that the, this data is difficult to access for sure. the customer. Yeah. So, uh, so a couple questions there, just in terms of, um, I, I think you've already sort of explained kind of how folks use the platform, like get their inventory in there, um, uh, uh, have this uh, sort of, you know, the vaunted industry term, a, a kind of single pane of glass of, of purchasing and, and um, uh, understanding the the uh, physical contours of your network. The kinds of enterprises that you deal with, I assume, would be ones that are a little bit more, um, maybe this is fair to say, forward thinking in their sourcing in that, you know, there's still a lot of large enterprises out there with thousands of sites that, that go to an ILEC or a, a, a big PTT and just say, Give me a network, right? So you're probably not so much dealing with that kind, or, or would you still sort of deal with someone who who's interested in in maybe a, a one or two stop shop kind of uh, sourcing situation? So I'll talk about what the product is built for, and then I'll talk about sort of um, how we've grown. Mm -hmm. So I think you should build a product for where the problem is most acute, mm -hmm. and in this case, the problem is that B2B telecom is wildly inefficient and that hurts the customer. Right. And I think that problem becomes more acute the more you are spending, mm -hmm. non-linearly. Right. So the, the, more, the bigger your telecom budget, non-linearly, just the level of complexity in terms of vendors, services, management becomes worse and worse and worse and more of a burden. And the cost of error gets higher. That tends to be at the enterprise. Mm -hmm. And that is who primarily we have built the product for. Mm -hmm. However, to your point, when we first hit the market, there were not a lot of enterprises that were willing to try a product sure. like this in particular, because a lot of these enterprises have been buying telecom the same way for Decades. Yeah, in, they, in they, they um, you know, are, are best friends with their sales rep at the big carrier. Are they, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And behavior change with some of these enterprises can be difficult in some cases for mm -hmm. for good reason. So we started off with like an SMB and mid market customer base, mm -hmm. but um, today I can say that we're working with quite a few Fortune 500 customers, mm -hmm. including quite a few Fortune 100 customers and many companies that you would have. Heard of. Yeah, household names uh, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there, there's there's quite a bit going on there, and we're managing now like RFPs in the sort of thousands of sites right. type range for for budgets spanning into the hundreds of millions. So that that we're at the earliest endings of that. Our company's been around only for a little bit over three years, mm -hmm. but um, 
we're seeing a lot of success and momentum there. In particular, it's driven by the fact that there aren't really good solutions in this space or our product resonates with people who fit the buyer persona at the enterprise. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and that's that's kind of why I asked the question is that um, obviously this wouldn't be an accident. You you saw this need in the market and that's why it, it, um, you know, would be started three years ago. But that was a, a very good sort of the last five years we've really seen on our side, like looking at this as, as um, analysts, um, really seen the way that the end user thinks about buying their WAN uh, change a lot, right? So, and, and we'll get into this more later when we talk about, I think, WAN trends and whatnot. But I, I would I would think that um, there are a lot of, of end users, uh, you know, WAN managers, IT infrastructure managers, sourcing professionals out there who want to get away from that kind of, you know, one-stop shop sort of thing because they understand uh, how much the, the market and their needs have changed and and the complexity of, of all of the different services they need now. Um, so, yeah, I, w- I would think that, um, that you could find inroads to even some of those really big folks who, who are used to going to a, a sort of single large carrier, perhaps. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I think in particular, this has been this is not unique to telecom. I think this has been happening in just all business purchasing in general. I think you're reaching a period where the average business buyer of any service um, is now used to what you've experienced as a consumer, Mm. you know, like Mm -hmm. 10, 15, 20 years prior, you saw the proliferation of all of these e-commerce products, Amazon, and just the battle for convenience on the consumer side. And when you see that, you, you get used to all of those things occurring and you realize how inefficient your B2B purchase processes have been and how painful that makes your life as a business buyer in whatever line item that you may deal with. And you, you've seen like, you know, we're just, one um, one component of the trend toward digitization in business purchasing, which has been slowly occurring in every single line item of how businesses buy things. Yeah, I, I, you know, just to really drive that point home, I, I think I see that across the entire sort of enterprise telecom IT kind of world. I mean, you know, first and most obviously anything as a service, right, is, is how that really did start with consumers. When you think about everything, um, if, if you have a... A, a meeting, you know, now it's it's on, you know, Meet or, or Zoom or something like that. Think about it as consumers. Now you're you're much younger than me, I think, but uh, I was I was using Skype to uh, to to talk to my parents, you know, uh, tw- almost twenty years ago. Right? You know what I mean? Um, and it take it take, seems like it took a long time for some of those sort of like built on the open internet kind of consumer um, products to work their way into enterprise grade service. And I, I think this might just be another example of that basically. Yeah. 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 It, it's, it's the case that business trends will lag what happens yeah. in the consumer market by like a decade mm-hmm. plus because also just businesses move slower. Right. Um, and they need so, some extra uh, often security and guarantees and, you know, there's, yeah. there's nothing like SLAs, but, but I think that's, what's interesting about all of these kind of unified comm services and WAN services and whatnot is that part of it has been the cultural change within the enterprise of sort of getting used to the level of service, if you will, that comes along with these new technologies, just, just being acceptable, you know, like, uh, a, 
hey, let's say an, an older executive might not have uh, been willing to deal with a, a call that took a few minutes to get connected, right? You know what I mean? You, yep. you grew up in a world where you, you pick up the phone at the time of the conference call and everybody's there and that's that. You know, we've all become more tolerant of things like just how UC works now where it usually takes everybody a few minutes to, to you know, update their software on whatever platform you're using or whatever. I mean, that's just you know, understood to be the case, right? So I think that that even kind of thing, and not, not saying that it's, that it's, it doesn't work. It, in fact, it works better. And that's the point. But that just a cultural change around even sort of WAN services of like, well, I don't need to, you know, the, the cliche of, you know, have a have a round of golf with my sales rep and, and, you know, sort of work out this like final price. Maybe I can just go look for the price of all the different services I, I want and, and figure it out like I would a consumer, you know, so. Yeah, and in particular, I think the note on the, the sales rep point is you may enjoy doing the round of golf with your sales rep or getting free Knicks tickets right. or whatever, which are pretty normal mm -hmm. for the space. Um, however, it's once you determine with data that although you enjoy this human and you know maybe you know maybe you enjoy going to that Knicks game, right. um, when you find that your bill is 30% higher than it should be right. and your service quality sucks relative to what it could be and that's made clear to you mm -hmm. in an objective manner, people tend to make changes. Mm -hmm. It's just that most of the people buying these services are unaware because there is no data. Right. You can't Google to determine this information generally. Um, it, it's These are very much quote unquote earned secrets mm -hmm. that we're trying to make not secret yeah. in any way. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let, let's drill in on that then. One of the things I kind of want to understand here so that folks can understand is where do you get your data? So I assume you had to get buy-in from carriers. Are you setting up APIs with carriers, getting KMZ files, that kind of thing? So we get our data from a variety of sources, the primary of which is proprietary in nature. Mm -hmm. sure. We just quote lots and lots and lots and lots of services. And the quantity of services that we quote goes up by a meaningful percentage every single month. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So with that, you can very quickly build up um, a repository of quote data where you can effectively make the market on a whole variety of commodity WAN services. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, for if you're getting a hundred meg on net DIA, you know, we can, you know, we've quoted thousands upon thousands of those this month, right. and we can give you the entire sort of bell curve distribution. And depending on every bell and whistle, whether you want to manage router or not, whether or not there may be construction involved and what type of construction, um, we can tell you, and even by carrier exactly what to expect for that service. And that data set becomes more powerful as time passes and it's properly live market data, mm -hmm. which is particularly useful. Um, that's where we get the majority of our data. Mm -hmm. So initially it wasn't statistically significant and you start off with the cold start of not having adequate data. Sure. Now it's very statistically significant, um, you know, no matter how you want to look at it. We also do have API tie-ins with carriers. We also purchase data. Mm -hmm. We get data that's reported by carriers. So we get data from like a variety of sources. But the triangulation is always the best, right? So, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah to, to that end. And we also get customer data as well mm. on purchased services. Mm -hmm. So customers will um, provide us with their network inventory that will onboard a SaaS. And of course, obviously, we're not sharing any individual customer data with, with anyone else, but the aggregate data can be useful. Right. Um, 
And that's where we get um, lots and lots and lots of data that we can utilize to drive benefits for the customer. And in some case for the carrier, meaning when I say for the carrier, we can give them data on why they lose deals. Because for example, every single carrier that bids via our service, we have perfect data on what other right. carriers were bid, who won, who lost, and what, what the winning criteria was. Mm -hmm. Whether it's what, price, it's SLA, whatever like that. Yeah. Yep. And we can report that back to carriers. And when you can report that back to carriers and carriers make changes, it benefits the customer. Mm -hmm. And it also benefits the carrier. say, yeah, primarily. there becomes this kind of uh, sort of recursive relationship with the carriers where they, they want to win more deals, right? So, yeah. And that is exactly what we observe. So we observe price deflation within our proprietary data set in well in excess of the market. Mm, mm, interesting. And that is a sign that we're driving statistically significant benefit on behalf of customer with some efficiency. Mm, mm -hmm. Kind of not unlike, unlike what you mentioned before, uh, consumer sales, once they move to the internet, the market expands to the whole world, all of a sudden competition becomes much more fierce, right? And, and so prices... For all kinds of things yeah, go down. It, right? it's, it's hard to argue that Amazon is inflationary for pricing, right? right? Exactly. Um, but also that's the way that things should work. Like carriers having sort of like customers by a stranglehold with no ability for customers to know who is best on an objective basis can only last for so long mm -hmm. in a really big market. That has to change because it's just not sustainable. Right. Yeah. Although, you know, the, the sort of <clears throat> the 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 carrier counterpoint to that is that uh, it is still true that prices have always been deflationary in telecoms for for supply reasons perhaps but um, certainly it's 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 the case and you know I've been benchmarking networks uh, for, for enterprises for ten years it's, it's certainly the case that you rarely run into someone who doesn't have room for savings <laughs> with with a slightly different strategy definitely so. Yeah. And, and to your point, like, the, you know, what I'm noting is to some degree, like novel hypothesis, and I'm sort of watching the data as it goes on. For sure, bandwidth has been deflationary, mm -hmm. even without any of the factors I'm noting. And there's like a supply reason for that. Right. Um, the, the, the thing is, is like, I would argue there is much more room for deflation than has actually occurred. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of cases, some of these business services are like, there are exceptions to this. But like at the primary carrier side, some of the highest margin services sold, like even much higher margin in many instances than the consumer services being sold. Certainly. And that the pricing in certain cases, there's no rhyme or reason other than like we can get away with this. And that should change. And some of that is hypothesis, but also it appears to be playing out in the data that we see. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I don't I don't think I disagree with that. Now, of course, I, I don't have any special information on on you know, actual carrier costs and stuff like that. But I just think uh, sort of by implication of understanding the market, it's pretty clear that MPLS, for example, was was a, a higher margin product than, than a lot of other things, right? Which just explains the drive in, in the changes uh, th that we're seeing in the market, certainly, you know, of, of folks rethinking on the enterprise side, maybe what should my network look like? Uh, not not just how do I source it, but, but what should the actual configuration of my network look like? So... Um, yep. I assume then through your tool, so you, you're gathering all of these data from quoting the carriers. Um, and, and I assume that's also just to be, interrupt my own question, geographically pretty di widely distributed if you have carriers and customers with sites all around the world, or is there um, some region that, that you have, you know, particular strength in? 
So we can quote globally mm -hmm. anywhere in the globe and we have access to over 1200 carriers. However, um, data, data, the strength of data is directly correlated to sort of like development and demand sure, in the market with some geographic bias. So anywhere in the United States, our data is excellent. Mm -hmm. um, and in other developed markets, it's extremely strong. Like Canada, we are extremely strong. Um, developed Europe, we are pretty strong. Once you get into other parts of the world, particularly developing markets, quoting can become more difficult. However, generally quoting uh, dedicated WAN services in these geographies is difficult regardless. And we do have sort of like direct carrier alignment with carriers in China, with carriers in India as examples, uh, but like slightly more difficult markets in the quant, like obviously we process many, many, many more quotes in, for example, like New York City mm -hmm. than we do, uh, for example, like rural China as an example. Sure. Yeah, no, the, I, you know, I asked that because it's a, it's a question I get asked about this kind of thing since we traffic in, in, in information and yeah, things. you guys can provide, for example, like when pricing data on like Azerbaijan or something. Yeah, like that, we can. Right? But but I mean, it comes with the same caveats. And, and th th that's what I always say, sort of, you know, um, that that if, if you're in, say, uh, landlocked Africa or, you know, um, sort of uh, one of the stands, right, <laughs> you know, so, something like that. You know, even if even if we can come up with a price or something or, you know, whatever, which sometimes is possible, you're a price taker in those markets anyway. Right? So so in other words, like uh, when there's competitive data, it's because there's a competitive market and, and you can find a competitive price. If, if there's literally uh, one provider, then you're pretty much a, a price taker, no matter what kind of uh, system you're, you're, you're running on, on the sourcing end anyway, right? So, and there's obviously, you know, <clears throat> it, depending on, on customer sets, right, that um, most, you know, even most large multinationals are still pretty much operating in, in the major business centers for the most part around the world. It's obviously, you get into some industries where we have sites that are, are you know, resource extraction or factories or, or, you know, something like that, where it becomes um, more important to understand those very difficult markets. But, you know, China is a good example there where um, because of the way that the China triopoly is set up, it's not even really a triopoly because they're geographic monopolies, you know what I mean? And that sort of thing where yeah. when people say, oh, what can I do in China? Sometimes the answer is kind of like, Eh, you know, pay pay what what they require. This there's not a whole lot of options when the market is is really closed anyway, right? So yeah, so there are some markets that are truly unique, and I'm sure China, to mm -hmm. your point, is one of them for the reason you're noting, where there's like you know there's only we can't. It's hard for us to unveil unlock competition where there's truly like very very little competition. Right. Dubai is another one yes. that's very expensive for a variety of reasons. So you have to do However, with any salon. Uh, yeah, anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, well yeah. And that's, that's where, you know, we, we struggle to source, like, we can source connectivity there, which is quite expensive. Right. However, in a lot of other geographic markets, even markets where we've quoted next to nothing, mm -hmm. we found that the utilization of data, even just like globally, can have a lot of power where we've been able to quote dedicated services at um, lower prices than a company's local team was able to quote mm -hmm. from like the carrier on site, just utilizing our overall data. Right. And the thing is, there are actually more similarities in general, like there, there are of course exceptions as noted, in general, 
with like the, the biggest variables are whether or not a carrier is on net or requires construction. And if construction is required, Absolutely. how much construction is required, yeah. that is far and away the most impactful variable. Mm -hmm. And then, and then any geographic specific factors that may increase the cost per carrier. Um, but outside of those things, um, there are a lot of, um, like even within the United States, for example, like, you know, pricing, you, you'd be surprised, like pricing in Nebraska, mm -hmm. so long as there's some competition is similar to pricing in Florida, where there's a similar level of competition when you're dealing with on net versus near net. Yeah, carriers. no, that's a great point. And, and again, one that, that um, I, I have to drive home sometimes even to, to folks that have been in some part of the industry for a long time, which is that um, you know, your, your geographic location within a developed market can be just as impactful as being in a, you know, in other words, <clears throat> one might have a, a much uh, better price or, or time sort of getting a, an access loop in downtown Sao Paulo, which is, you know, certainly a more expensive market than if you're in, you know, uh, rural Iowa or something like that, because, you know, to your point, digging holes, hanging wires on poles, all of that is extremely expensive and difficult. In fact, we've, we've had a couple episodes on that with um, with some local access kind of ISP suppliers um, uh, to your earlier point of thinking about uh, making an ISP. It's hard work. It's not like it's not they, they are not often, uh, you know, sort of raking it in in the sense that to reach unserved markets, obviously, from an economic standpoint, is a great uh, idea because you, you can, you know, sort of. Um, extract prices by, by people who have no alternatives, but just getting there and and um, and being able to go through there's there's so many layers in the US, for example, and it's not too different in many other parts of the world. You might have uh, municipal regulations, uh, state regulations, federal regulations, all of these uh, fees and layered on top of that. And then there's like finding skilled labor who knows how to, you know, uh, lay fiber in a trench and all that sort of thing. Um, so I think I think folks need to to understand the, the market from the from the sort of ground up, literally, um, yeah. of how difficult this can be and that there there are some pricing situations where there's just no way around that physical reality, you know? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. So, so where I was going to go before I sort of interrupted myself with my, that last question is, <laughs> is, um, you know, given that, that you have this trove of data from, from both sides, which is really interesting, right? So, um, uh, looking at the, the, the customer networks that you brought on board, um, what are you seeing as kind of the the, the big WAN trends? And I, I won't go through mine because people who listen to the show, I've already, in fact, a few uh, um, episodes ago, I did an episode on our all you know WAN trends that we found. I love to triangulate this with other folks who are kind of watching the market in a similar way. Um, what would you say since you've been doing this three years? Um, what would you say you've seen emerge um, as as the key trends in in WAN sourcing over the past few years? Um, so I'll talk about a few trends in aggregate, mm -hmm. and some of these will probably be among the most obvious trends out there. It's, I think don't be shy about them. obvious. Obvious is good because people need reinforcement when you because often in IT we hear stories and we need to attach those stories to some data, to some some actual real world ground truthing, you know. Yeah, so let's tie that together. So the most, so a longer term trend that's been occurring over the past 10 to 15 years is the shift 
tool from on-premise services to cloud-based services mm -hmm. in one way or another that's driven a variety of WAN trends. In particular, it's made a lot of MPLS networks in the ways that they were traditionally used obsolete, right. and also they're very expensive and painful to maintain. So they're nice to get rid of in certain instances, and it's led to a drive toward fiber-based underlay, whether it be like internet or point-to-point -point mm -hmm. or wave circuits or some combination mm -hmm. of, of those services with some type of an SD-WAN overlay um, in particular. And I think also with that, there's been a shift from on-premise data centers to private data centers. And in a lot of cases, and now probably in the majority of cases for regular companies getting started, just pure public cloud right. deployments in particular, which changed the need for data centers. Um, the more recent trend that also impacts this and changes how you think about SD-WAN um, and just like the general WAN is hybrid and remote work that became Nuvo post-COVID in particular and had a lot of enterprises rethink the entirety of their corporate networks in WAN. And the most recent recent trend driven by sort of this like 2022 downturn slash maybe recession mm -hmm. slash mini recession whatever you want to call it is just a shift toward um aggressive cost cutting right um obviously every year bandwidth deflates mm -hmm. and mpls has become obsolete there's been a proliferation of cheaper services, but we have seen a lot of enterprises get much, much more aggressive to either change technologies, um, reevaluate their spend, um, rationalize their networks overall, reduce the size of their WAN, whatever it may be, find a way to cut costs mm -hmm. in the past year. Um, and we at Lightyear help people accomplish that. Um, so those are a few trends that are pretty real um some trends that i think people talk about mm -hmm. that are not real that's the most fun uh -huh. part right so and, and just before you get there i'll just say i have seen personally data that that essentially backs up everything you said I, and i think those are you know relatively uncontroversial uh changes that that a lot of us have seen for real so now please proceed yeah 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 yeah, that, that, yeah exactly yeah. These, these should be as, as uncontroversial as it gets yeah. because people are actually buying this stuff and it's and it's still going on in a very real like there is a lot of mpls i was, was going to say that, that i also would, would interject that there are there is a lot of room i i you know I would wager that I could approach, you know, a, a random Fortune 500 company that I pick out of a hat and, you know, they could still reduce their WAN spend by a significant amount, 30% perhaps, you know what I mean? So um, we're, unless they've already gone working. fully down that road, which some of them have, you know, but yeah. Mm -hmm. we're, we're working with quite a few of the Fortune 100 right now. Mm -hmm. um, and pretty much every project is some form of an MPLS turned out. Right, exactly. And and, that, and like, these are probably among the biggest buyers of MPLS. And if they're still out there, you know, like their data points that they get, but there's, there's still a lot of MPLS to get rid of. There are some MPLS that's going to stick around for specific use cases where the quality mm -hmm. of service makes the most sense, but it is going to be a much smaller market than it, than it once was. Total um, agreement there, yeah. Well, and, and I guess let me go into some spectrum of trends. So real, real trends, cost cutting, cloud utilization, mm -hmm. hybrid and remote work. And to some degree, these are all tied together. Sure. There is like um, less on-prem and more cloud-based services, um, public cloud primarily, and in some cases, private cloud mm -hmm. where it makes the most sense. Um, 
new WAN, like SD-WAN overlay is much more popular. And also internet or fiber-based underlay is much more popular. And people are much smarter about what they're buying in terms of bandwidth cost, bandwidth needs, and like willingness to turn down network. Absolutely. Those are the general yeah. things that pull up. And the other thing to note is with hybrid and remote work in particular, there was the SD-WAN of 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of like the initial SD-WAN, the start of the trend toward SD-WAN, right. when it was more of a buzzword and less reality. Yeah, now and stuff like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. sorry. Yeah, like now there are, now there is, oh, there's a lot of SD-WAN deployed and um, customers are shifting from sort of generation one of SD-WAN to generation two of SD-WAN. Mm-hmm. And in particular, hybrid or remote work especially changes the whole perimeter of what's in your network. Right. So. That means there are a bunch of new use cases for your WAN. There are a bunch of new endpoints on your WAN, and um, you want your WAN to do different things and encompass security. So, like a ship, products like SASE mm-hmm. are real and quite popular and being sought after for these reasons. Yep. And sort of like the new school of SD WAN is a particular trend driven by increased crowd utilization and shift toward hybrid and remote work in particular. And that's worth noting. Yeah. So that I adopting SD WAN now without thinking about the uh, sassy posture on top of that, I think would be pretty unusual, you know? So, yeah. Yes. hundred percent. Um, trends that are like, here's where I'd say it, like jury is out mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, network as a service, mm-hmm. um, network as a service is a hyped trend. And there are a couple of sort of like gen one ish network as a service companies like packet fabric and megaport in particular mm-hmm. that have had um some decent degrees of success right. and there, there are other companies in this arena as well that sort of as a service yeah the, as the service fabric company. providers we'll call them right yeah mm-hmm. yes these products have real use cases and real enterprise benefits and some customers who really really love them and they've achieved some good commercial traction However, they primarily work for commodity services in the data center, which is only a small fraction of where the enterprise win lies. And in particular, as the data center for some types of enterprises becomes less relevant, they become in certain cases less relevant. Mm -hmm. So do they truly as a service your network? It's really like they, they're in some cases, like for certain use cases, totally beautiful products that achieve great things. And I'm bullish on these companies. Um, But um, only like certain niche use cases is where they fit the most. There are these new school network as a service companies, Nile, and there's another company called Meter that have raised venture capital recently, large amounts of capital. Mm-hmm. And they're basically trying to basically combine like MSP services with WAN overlay with actually deploying network and even deploying your APs and you pay a fee for them. Mm-hmm. Um, these companies are very early stage and pretty small, and we haven't seen much proliferation of them. So I'm not going to say one way or another whether or not this model is going to work. I would just say jury is out. Like, we'll see. Like, we haven't seen much of it. But over the court, like, as the years pass, maybe this is the biggest trend, and maybe this is how um, enterprises want to buy network, or maybe some enterprises do. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the average SMB or enterprises without IT teams that don't want to sort of in-house it. So we'll see what happens there. From a business model perspective, when they're actually installing APs, wiring, they have MSPs, they're they're on call for support, and they're managing the ISP as well. Um, that is one of those things where I'm curious to see how that works from a business model mm-hmm. perspective. Like that seems difficult to coordinate and make a margin without pricing quite a bit. 
Yeah, um, and there's got to be a lot of work on the back end. There's there has to be a lot of automation with all of those ISPs and carriers that has to happen, and maybe you know that, that might involve setting up, I don't know, dozens of proprietary APIs and stuff like that. That um, that would would need to have already happened before that's a viable model, I would think, right? So. Yeah, yeah, and so I'm eagerly watching these companies and curious to see how things pan out with them. Mm -hmm. So that's where I would say jury is out. Areas where I call sort of like BS on the reality of these things in particular, or actually one, one trend I want to call out that is very real that is occurring right now mm -hmm. is sort of a reshift to private cloud. And when I say private cloud, primarily co-location data centers mm -hmm. with companies managing their own infrastructure for two reasons. One is cost cutting. There are a lot of cloud companies that like SaaS companies or companies that offer, like, you know, Dropbox is one of the popular case studies in this mm -hmm. arena where they were able to, they, they obviously offer storage as a product. They were running fully on public cloud and they were able to ship to a private, like a series of their, their own self-managed right. cloud um, and cut their, cut their costs, I think by like 40, 50% in this line item. That's one big thing that's driving that's a shift toward co-location or hybrid cloud where it makes sense. Right. Um, driving to the cost cutting trend. Second is AI. Mm -hmm. um, for a lot of AI companies that are training data, they want to deploy and manage their own services. And we're seeing an influx of AI companies that are basically buying data center space. Mm -hmm. They're buying cloud connectivity. They're, you know, racking and stacking servers. And that's how they're starting their companies. Mm -hmm. um, will they continue to do that? Is that going to be the norm for a lot of companies? We will see, but that's right now a short-term trend that is quite real. Mm -hmm. um, the but going back to sort of the BS arena, like two things I'd want to call out as sort of like BS are Edge Cloud. Mm. Um, edge Cloud is obviously very real technology, like deploying something at the edge and building out an edge network is a real thing. It's just nobody buys this and nobody uses this. There are very few use cases where a true edge. That's what that's what my first thought on it always is. Okay, yes, there are some very latency sensitive applications out there. They're pretty few, right? You know what I mean? So exactly, you know. Um, it, it, it kind of like you you might um, remember this um, from your TMT kind of days or whatever. There's, uh, I don't know, maybe like 10 plus years ago, this big push. Oh, high frequency traders need these like ultra low latency routes between, you know, key places, New York, Chicago, uh, London, Singapore, that kind of So some folks built these like ultra low latency routes just for that purpose. And it's like, okay, then the like half a dozen high frequency traders bought that for a premium and you have a whole bunch of like everybody else who doesn't really care that you shaved five milliseconds off that route, right? You know what yeah. I mean? So, yeah. Yeah, that's a perfect, perfect example of like, it is a thing. There are, mm -hmm. Edge Cloud is a real technology. There are real use cases and there are real, there are real instances that are truly latency sensitive. It is just few and far between. Right. And um, it's just like, this is one of those like hammers looking for an L. The Edge Cloud companies have not done well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's sort of like, fake tech, a fake trend. Another sort of fake trend is private 5G or edge 5G, mm -hmm. which is just like these carriers like want to talk about 5G and talk about use cases. Enterprise are not buying building 5G networks. Like there's mm -hmm. no point, there's no reason, like why would they do this? And like, you know, find me an enterprise. Like I think there was like one case study where some enterprise built a private 5g network and it's like cool you found the one company that bought this for no reason yeah again it's one of those things where you know maybe somebody has a very particular use case uh, uh but 
for the most part, I don't know if you, if you would agree with this. For for five G, what I what I would be interested in seeing is as fixed wireless access um, to to replace you know to to be that secondary or tertiary line for your SD WAN connectivity or something like that. I, I haven't seen that emerge to the extent that I thought it would by now, perhaps, but. Fixed wireless is definitely a thing. Like, for example, we sell quite a lot of LTE backup mm-hmm. or quote unquote 5G right. backup right. from carriers. Like, that's a thing that is sold as sort of like a secondary or tertiary connection. We also will sell um, dedicated fixed wireless. Like, that is a big thing where um, in geographies where either deployment is a constraint or like carriers that are near net require tons of it can actually be more cost effective or time effective to get multiple wireless points of entry to a building and build out a connection. Mm-hmm. Those are not gar- like that's not a gargantuan use case, but it is yeah. real yeah. and we do see it quite a bit. Um, we sell quite a bit of these. So those are things I would see. However, like with regard to like fixed wireless in aggregate, I think people um, when, when fixed wireless started coming onto the scene as a real carrier offering from like the Verizon's mm-hmm. AT&T's of the world. We're like, this is just going to demolish broadband where it's mm-hmm. like, this performs on par to worse than broadband right. for a slightly higher cost right. in a lot of instances, similar thing with Starlink, which, you know, is even higher cost and mm-hmm. even lower performance. Exactly. Um, yeah. That is where when you can't get better options, you will use these and they will take real share and become big right. businesses, no doubt in my mind. Mm-hmm. But if you can get a $50 fiber connection, that accomplishes what you want, you're not going to use fixed wireless Absolutely. because it will literally be worse and more expensive. Same thing with like Starlink, you have to pay $500 for the CPE and then you, you're paying like, you know, one to $200 a month. And I think there's a business connection that's like $500 a month. And mm-hmm. we've sold some Starlink, sure. don't get me wrong, but it is in instances where you cannot get other cost competitive connectivity. No, because that's, you can that's get a 200, 200 meg symmetric fiber connection from a carrier right. where it's on net for like a hundred bucks a month, where it's like, why would you not buy that? Right. I mean, exactly to our point before, digging trenches, hanging wires on poles, that, that's difficult. If, if that's your situation, if you're in a greenfield situation, spinning up with, with 5G fixed wireless or, or a, a Leo satellite connection, that's great. But that's the last the connectivity of last resort use. It's it's hard to see it expanding much beyond the the connectivity of last resort case. Or there's there's another case that's fair that where you have certain uh, tenancy situations. Like I'm in a mall and that mall has a contract with with Comcast or Spectrum or someone like that, and I'm not allowed to get another wireline service. Like eh, you know, the, the, there's situations like that. But if you have competitive wireline service into your building, it's it's hard to see you wanting to replace that with with uh, something wireless, right? So. Yeah. Um, Until the stuff can perform better or is truly cheaper for some reason, Mm -hmm. uh, where there are just physical limitations at hand, Mm -hmm. like a wired connection is superior to a wireless connection. Mm -hmm. That is physical fact. So that's where I think these these technologies will have the role and be large. Mm -hmm. And I'm very bullish on like what Starlink is going to achieve. I just think it's going to fill the gaps where gaps exist, which is excellent. I think that's good for the world. It's the sand in the jar of marbles, right? (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So that was really interesting. And and, um, uh, I want to circle back on on one thing about NAS, um, where you, you, you made this interesting case. And I agree that there's, we, I think the problem is that we, 
use the word NAS to refer to services that are totally different from one another, right? So I think yeah. I think maybe we should come up with a name for the packet fabrics and megaports of the world that, that has that particular niche. And I know folks from, from the enterprise community that absolutely love it because they have a need to spin up, uh, you know, uh, bandwidth between data centers uh, on an as-needed basis and things like that, right? What about the idea of NAS being applied to kind of just a different way of contracting WAN services, right? In other words, I've encountered some people who the way that they describe NAS would almost be like what you guys are doing. Right? It's like, like yeah, yeah, exactly. where so you can buy WAN. Guy, yeah, I could totally call like, oh, well, you know, you have a software product where you can buy WAN stuff and you can get built for right. it. Call, call us NAS, where, where I know that that's me selling bullshit. Right. It's, it's the, the NAS washing, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's that's just all I wanted to sort of make clear. There is is that I th I think sometimes when you encounter people who are like, oh, we have a NAS product, it's it's kind of like NAS washing, and what they really mean is a slightly different way of contracting or a portal or something like that. It's it's not a, a sort of technological solution along the lines of like like you, you know, mentioned the pack of fabrics over and over the world. And the, and the other thing I've always thought about that just as a kind of aside is that uh, like like you mentioned, like that's a data center technology. End to end bandwidth on demand is almost inconceivable, right? Because you know what I mean. It's like, um, and again, there there are there are situations and and uh, and um, you know some instances where where that's possible and 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 uh, you know sort of would be useful. But but in the end, you know, for the most part, an enterprise has an office and they roughly know how much bandwidth that office is going to use, and the carrier or ISP has bandwidth provision. They can't just all of a sudden provision tons more bandwidth to the end customer yeah, like site. The, you know? Megaport and Packet Fabric are managing like really complex networks to be able to provide their services. In for the what core. it's worth. Right, yeah. Yeah, they provide what, um, in my perspective, are pretty interesting. And for the specific use cases, like seemingly beautiful products mm -hmm. that solve a need and have real commercial traction. Right. These other products like Nylon Meter that are also quote unquote network as a service, um, they are effectively kind of like managed Wi-Fi mm -hmm. products mm -hmm. and, and managed Wi-Fi is a product that's been around for a while. A lot of companies that have gotten big in that space have gone bankrupt just because of the cost right. and the battle for revenue, even though I think it is a very real market and need, but is that really network as a service? Right. I don't know. And like, I'm not the arbiter of the definition, but I do think that if these guys provide like a really, really quality service um, to the right type of customer package in the right way, they'll probably become big businesses. Mm -hmm. You know, the margins thing is going to be a question as well, but you know, time will tell. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think ultimately that's, that's what it really comes down to is, um, you know, it's not too different than, than where SD-WAN was, uh, you know, seven or eight years ago when, when anyone who was doing any kind of over-the-top service for a WAN was calling it SD-WAN. It took a while, uh, you know, the MEF uh, organization worked on this and the, the industry kind of just lands on, well, okay, th these are the, the sine qua non sort of features of an SD-WAN. I, I think we'll have to get there with NAS perhaps um, where we're we start to be that the industry, when someone says that word, they mean the same thing as everybody else saying it, right? So it just sometimes takes some time uh, to, to figure that out. All right, Dennis. I, the definition of a buzzword will never happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, you know, that, that, that has also happened, definitely. So, um, so 
this has been really fascinating. Uh, like I said, it's 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 great to talk to someone who's uh, intelligent, and articulate about the the things that that I think about a lot. So one question I love to ask um, uh, folks like you is is kind of like. What is, and this is almost a philosophical question, what is what is the future of the WAN? In other words, you know, uh, if you go through the history of what a WAN was, like when you're starting out, um, you know, sort of private lines, hub and spoke, and all, there was this private network that deserved to be called a wide area network, extending the LAN out. Um, are, are we maybe headed to a future where everything that's WAN-like is actually ha- happening over the top and, and really you have a commodity sort of connectivity service. And, um, and, and that's, you know, just like uh, a consumer at home, you know, um, uh, connecting to a service somewhere um, uh, is the WAN kind of disappearing in a way, in your opinion? Um, I think that the market, like I believe in efficiency of decision-making within markets. So I think basically my whole prediction underlies what is most efficient and effective for the use case will be what prevails. Mm -hmm. So to that end, in many, many cases uh, for just standard fair use cases, commodity connectivity with or without some SD-WAN or something overlay Mm -hmm. plus cloud-based, like public cloud-based services will prevail. That is true and you will slowly head there. And also within connectivity where sort of like fixed wireless, Starlink, will work competitive they will take some share mm-hmm. where uh, copper based services exist and fiber has been overbuilt or exists like fiber will take share from copper mpls will go away. those things are true but also i think um private cloud will take share from public cloud mm-hmm. where public clouds cost curve has become too over the top hybrid cloud will be more of a thing use cases like ai and such will lead to stuff there you know, I think new school SD-WAN and SASE will take share from old school in particular, just noting, like given given the contour of networks we're talking about, will will be bigger. Um, and I think like bandwidth will deflate, mm. continue to, and, mm-hmm. and the market will continue to be competitive. These are all like things that are just happening right now yeah. as we speak. So these are very non-controversial predictions, but I also just think these trends will continue because these trends are just driven by what is most efficient for the mm-hmm. enterprise. And I believe that's what will happen. Yeah, no, excellent. I think that's that's a really uh, interesting distillation of it all. So excellent. Well, so Dennis, um, if you, listeners want to follow up with, with you and, and Lightyear, how can they find you? Um, so lightyear.ai is our domain. Please check out our website and follow us on LinkedIn. Um, you know, Lightyear with the sort of bluish logo. There are a couple other companies called Lightyear. Um, <laughs> That's always difficult. A lot right? of yeah. Content yeah. On these topics. So check us out. Excellent. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining me. Like I said, this was really, truly interesting. And um, I think uh, it's, it's, it's great to talk to folks that that really speak my language and and you know can sort of um, uh, help orient uh, where where all of these things are going because it's it just seems like it's getting increasingly complex every year. So it it absolutely is. Um, Greg, thank you again for having me. This is a fun conversation. Yeah, absolutely. We'll do it again sometime. Thanks for listening. Telegeography Explains the Internet comes from the experts here at Telegeography. It's edited and produced by Jane Miller, and it's hosted by me, Greg Bryan. And I also wrote that theme song you're listening to right now. To learn more about our data, jump over to telegeography.com, and we'll see you on the Internet.